Welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Amanda Ryman, founder of Personal Plants. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so thrilled you are here today. I was telling my producer before you came on that he is in for a real treat. Oh, I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ryman is the founder of Personal Plants, an online platform that supports and empowers home cultivators and processors of therapeutic plants. She's also vice president of community development for Flocana, a branded cannabis distribution company that works with sun-grown farmers in the Emerald Triangle. Dr. Ryman is also a board member of the California Cannabis Tourism Association, the Mendocino Cannabis Alliance, the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council, and the initiative, the first incubator accelerator for women-owned cannabis businesses. After receiving her PhD from UC Berkeley, Dr. Ryman was the Director of Research and Patient Services at Berkeley Patients Group, one of the oldest dispensaries in the country and the manager of Marijuana Law and Policy for the Drug Policy Alliance, a national nonprofit that was engaged in the drafting and campaigns of legalization initiatives across the country and abroad. She also taught courses on substance abuse treatment and drug policy at UC Berkeley for 10 years and has published several research articles and book chapters on the use of cannabis as a substitute for opiates and the social history of the cannabis movement. Amanda currently lives in Ukiah. Wow. Amanda, you are an OG in the truest sense of the word. And oh, I that bio is too long. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I do usually cut them down, but woman, you have done so much incredible stuff. I, and, and I feel like two paragraphs barely begins to cover it. Oh, thank so you. I really want to hear your cannabis story from the beginning. I mean, I've, I've heard bits and pieces, but I haven't really heard the whole part of how you found your way to cannabis post-doctorate, but pre-legalization. Sure. Um, so, you know, I grew up in the Midwest in the 1990s, uh, very much a prohibition era for cannabis and other drugs. And I discovered cannabis in my early 20s, primarily as an alternative to alcohol. Um, you know, I'm not against alcohol. I love wine. But in terms of like um, a social lubricant, uh, you know, things that people in their young 20s are looking for in terms of their substances, cannabis was a winner for me over alcohol. From the very first time I used it, and this is before I even knew about our endocannabinoid systems or anything like that, I felt that the plant and I had a special bond and a special relationship. And it was interesting because because it wasn't too long after that, that I was diagnosed with arthritis, which was in my mid twenties, uh, in my feet. 
And so I was given the choice at that time, whether I wanted to start regular steroid injections along with muscle relaxers and painkillers. And I was in my mid twenties and I was a very active person, uh, had always been very athletic. And the idea of starting on that kind of regimen that early in my life really scared me. Luckily at this time, I was living in California because I had moved out there in 2002 in order to start the PhD program at Berkeley. And I found myself surrounded by the wide, wonderful, unique world of medical cannabis. And back at that time in the early 2000s, the medical cannabis dispensaries that were operating in the San Francisco Bay Area were still very much influenced by the HIV, LGBTQ movement that really spawned the modern day medical cannabis movement. The idea that individuals who had HIV were being largely ignored by the health system. There was a rampant misinformation about HIV. And a lot of this led to the social and community-based use of medical cannabis. The dispensaries at that time were very much modeled after this movement. They were community centers. They were health centers. They offered social support. They were a lot less like Apple stores and a lot more like community rec centers. And as a medical cannabis patient myself, and as someone who was a social worker and who was studying social welfare, it struck me that this was an extremely unique situation. When you look at healthcare in the United States, it is very top down. It is very authoritarian based. There is very little room for community engagement. And the medical cannabis model was really flipping this on its head and was really starting from the patient. It was starting from education and empowerment. And so I decided to write about it for my doctoral dissertation, partially because, I mean, who doesn't want to spend their doctoral dissertation sitting inside dispensaries getting high and talking to patients? I mean, it was, you know, a dream come true that lovely summer. But also because I knew that due to capitalism in the United States, as medical cannabis grew, we were going to see the models of care start to mimic the way we looked at other medicines, uh, which was Walgreens, CVS, drugstore model, pharmacy model, uh, and that that community part could be lost. So in order to document it, because as a researcher, you know, that we're about documentation, uh, I did a study about what patients were getting out of those experiences at dispensaries. And it was through this research that I really hit on this idea of substitution and found that a great number of patients in my sample were using cannabis as a substitute for something else, whether that be pharmaceutical drugs or alcohol or other illicit substances. And they were doing it because they were finding greater relief from cannabis, less chance of dependence, fewer negative side effects. And this was really interesting to me. And this was in the mid-2000s, like 2005, 2006, before we had really seen the height of the opiate overdose epidemic. And I was very interested in cannabis from a harm reduction perspective. Now, of course, I was leaving academia at this point, uh, having just completed a postdoctoral fellowship through UC Berkeley, and recognizing that the type of research I wanted to do on cannabis, harm reduction, cannabis as a treatment for drug dependence, just wasn't something that the federal government was interested in learning about or funding. 
So I went off on my own and, you know, really kind of procured and curated my own path in cannabis research and policy, starting at Berkeley Patients Group, where I believe I was the first director of research to be hired by a dispensary. But I was really able to do some great studies in that job on the use of cannabis as a substitute, studies that spawned uh, replications in other countries like Canada. And so that was something that I was really proud of because I think it really started the conversation about cannabis cannabis and harm reduction kind of in this modern policy context. And then in 2012, uh, Berkeley Patients Group was shut down by then District Attorney Melinda Haig, and they ended up laying off 75% of their workforce, including myself. And that's when I went to work for the Drug Policy Alliance, because I figured that until the laws were really different, until we were able to establish legalization on the state level in California, we were going to see no end to these disruptions. So I joined Drug Policy Alliance uh, in there. I helped draft and pass Prop 64, uh, which legalized cannabis in California in 2016. And then I decided to get back into kind of boots on the ground community social work and moved up to the Emerald Triangle to work with Flow Cannabis Company, really as a liaison between the cannabis world and the greater community to help the community integrate into legalization, knowing that this community in particular had heavy economic drivers coming from the unregulated market. So for the past four years, I've been re-embracing my community social work values and applying them here in Mendocino County. And then that is what kind of led me to personal plans and the understanding that at the end of the day, there is an entire population of people that are dancing around the use of earth medicines. And our job is to help them feel comfortable, welcomed, and excited about the opportunity to use plants over pills. So that pretty much brings us up to today, December 16th. And um, I'll go ahead and pause. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there is so much there to talk about. One of the things that I really wanted to focus on with you today is something that you and I have very much in common, and that is our desire to build community. And it's it definitely takes a special personality to to do that. And I recall a conversation that we had where you were talking to me about the benefits of building a community around a brick and mortar local cannabis business. And I, I would love for you to share your thoughts on why a brand, why a cannabis company really needs to make it important to be a part of the community. Because it's really, in all of the conversations we have around cannabis business, this is still a conversation that is not being had, but is so critical. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's several reasons why community becomes so important when we're talking about the success of a cannabis business. You know, for one thing is the mystique around cannabis itself. And even though cannabis is becoming more destigmatized, we're seeing big business get involved, you know, celebrities, it's becoming a little boring. The reality is there's still a titillation factor around the use of cannabis, around accessing cannabis. And in the absence of you coming into the community and talking about who you are, they will make up stories about who you are. And those stories will be based on antiquated views about who cannabis consumers are. So when we came up here to Mendocino County as Flow Cannabis Company, one of the first things we did was host a community meeting. And I keep thinking about that meeting because it was not fun. Uh, we we were coming into a very rural community uh, that has mixed feelings about cannabis. 
We were taking over a large campus that had previously been used to process wine. And people had a lot of questions about who we are and what we were doing there. Uh, But we stood and we took it. We took their jabs. We took their accusations. And we were transparent about who we were and what we wanted to do. And to be honest, I feel like that has really contributed to our success in the region. uh, Because if we hadn't done that, we still would have moved in and people would have been talking behind our backs about who we were and what we wanted to do. But rather than that, they can come and tell us to our faces. And that's something I would much prefer. So I think that for the sake of letting the community know who you are, uh, that's one reason why it's so important to be transparent and to know that you're not doing anything wrong. Cannabis businesses are amazing economic drivers for communities. They're not public health sucks on communities, right? They don't suck out public health money. Um, They don't cost communities money. And so getting the community over this idea and to help them see you as an ally uh, rather than an adversary is really important. Secondly, from the point of the consumer, it's really important for you to have a good relationship with the community. You know, consumers want to feel like they're going someplace to purchase their cannabis that is in line with their values. And different brick and mortars are going to look various ways depending on the community. It's important because at the end of the day, cannabis really is a therapy, Um, whether you call it adult use or recreational or medical or however you choose to phrase it there is a therapeutic aspect to cannabis use. And so to honor that, it's important for consumers to feel that that opportunity to obtain cannabis reflects who they are and who their communities are. And so, you know, a really good example of this, I think, is cookies. So we may have all seen the cookie stores. They're very bright blue and they're very, very difficult to miss. Uh, We've seen them pop up in Oakland and Los Angeles. And in those communities, that type of dispensary plays very well. I would laugh if I saw that dispensary come into my community of 16,000 people um, and set up shop. Um, It would be very jarring. People would be very suspicious. Um, They would feel like it was an eyesore in the community. So it's like, know your audience. Mm -hmm. And part of knowing your audience is actually getting out there and interacting with your community. So what do they value? You know, what are their issues? What, how can you support what they're trying to accomplish? Um, You know, at Flow Cannabis Company, I spent a lot of the first two years that I was up here, just kind of doing a listening tour, going to different community groups, uh, listening to them talk about what they had, had experienced in cannabis in the past, what they were hoping to get out of a cannabis industry in their town. I spoke at Rotary Clubs. I basically spoke anywhere that they would have me. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, that experience helped us learn a lot more about what cannabis consumers here are looking for. But it also helped helped us not make the misstep of trying to force some kind of image or model onto a community that was going to reject it. Do you think that that focus on community has had an impact on the internal company culture? That's a good question. I would say yes and no. Um, It's not enough. So it's not a panacea. You know, being involved in the community, it, you know, when you hire a bunch of local folks, as we have done here, obviously seeing that your company is sponsoring Pride or is sponsoring um, a food drive or is sponsoring a fundraiser for a domestic violence shelter, you know, you feel pride in that. 
Um, and I think that that is important because, you know, these folks who have been part of these communities for decades want to see that the place that they work is supportive of where they live. But it's not enough. It's not enough. And there's something that goes beyond just being supportive of the community um, when it comes to morale of your employees that has more to do with the why of your company. And yes, you can talk about that in the community. We exist for this reason. But unless your employees really internalize that and really come to work every day with a passion that's going to carry them through the monotony, it's not going to, it's still going to break down. So I would say involvement with the community is an important first step, but it's definitely not a replacement for constantly checking in with your employees so they understand why you're doing this. And I think that's a a harder part. Yeah, these are conversations that I wish most companies would have as part of the consideration in building their infrastructure is how you kind of weave the two in between external community and internal community because they're, you know, I mean, things are going to change after COVID and I, I'm going to be very interested to see the impact that community plays on a, a local cannabis business or the local cannabis businesses because, you know, at least in California, I know we're a lot of uh, jurisdictions, we're only at what, 20% penetration in the number of jurisdictions that allow cannabis businesses. But now that they're seeing the benefit of tax revenue, suddenly we've got a lot more coming on board. So it's it's about to change the dynamic with everything and you're going to have a lot of small communities. So I thank you for sharing that, that information. Um, I want to actually talk a little bit now about personal plans. And you have been doing so much for the community and for companies and for academia. And now you're taking on being a founder yourself. So what has been hard and what has been rewarding about becoming a founder? Oh, wow. You know, I'll start with the rewarding first, because that's definitely what I feel most when I think about what I'm doing. You know, what's been most rewarding for me about this is that it's a personal passion. And, you know, cannabis is a passion of mine, but underneath the cannabis um, is my passion of self-determination. It's really why I became a social worker. A big part of social work is helping people feel that they have the skills that they need to do what they want in life. And we also know that the systems are acting on them and we work on those system systemic barriers as well. But this idea of giving people the confidence that they have control over their lives is very important for mental health. And one of the things we've seen during COVID is this desire for that control. We've seen it in the form of people growing their own food, making bread. I look at this not only as ways to address boredom, but ways to bring some control back into what you put in your body, what you do with your hands, and what you do with your time. At the same time, I've been growing my own cannabis for over 20 years, and I was doing it in Chicago in you know the late 90s in my little apartment in my closet in a refrigerator box with one light, and I was very hard-pressed to find valuable information about how to do this. Uh, about how to grow cannabis, about how to process cannabis. And even though we've seen the industry evolve leaps and bounds since the late 90s, there's still a big absence when it comes to empowering home cultivators beyond just, hey, dude, you can grow a ton of cannabis with a lot of THC and I'll show you how, you know, never mind, I won't show you my face, but I'll show you how to do it. Um, And for me, you know, you were talking about 
access becoming broader as more communities look to cannabis as a revenue generator. And what that says to me is that whether it's small communities in California or entire states like South Dakota, we have a lot of cannabis adopters that are about to come down who really don't have experience and who haven't been part of the culture. And so I feel like it's our responsibility to equip and empower them so that they can be successful in their own earth medicine journeys. So the idea behind personal plants is really connecting a very, very easy, almost paint by numbers approach to earth medicine paired with an e-learning platform. So, you know, when you look at subscription food boxes and some of these DIY home health care uh, products that we've seen come down, we understand that people have an interest in getting their hands involved in their wellness and in their food. We also understand that people are more likely to adopt behaviors if they have early successes with them. Uh, from my research on home cannabis growing, I have found that a main reason people do not pursue it is because they fail. They fail the first time, they feel like it's too difficult, and they don't pick it back up. So with personal plants, what we're aiming to do is to give people these kits that make it extremely easy to make a tincture or an infused honey or to grow mushrooms. And each kit has a QR code that you can scan that takes you directly to a class. And that class is going to be a 10-minute short that will show you exactly how to make the product you have in front of you and exactly how to use it. And so the idea is that we're going after the early adopters, the non-adopters of plant medicines and helping them understand the ease with which they could replace some of their pharmaceutical drugs, whether that be um, prescription drugs or even over-the-counter drugs like Advil, making it super easy and fun. I'm hoping that we're going to bring along these not yet adopters into plant medicine, you know, using things like cannabis to get their attention. And what has been hard for you to about becoming a founder? The hardest thing is being a woman. No, I'm just kidding. I would say that one of the hard, the difficult things is that I'm not a business person. So I don't have a business background. Um, I am a nonprofit, academic, NGO type of gal. Uh, my work at Flow Cannabis Company, aside from my brief stint at Berkeley Patients Group, is really the first time I've been employed in the private sector if by a business. So it's been, um, there's learning that has to go along with that. And, you know, luckily I have an amazing group of advisors. I will mention my entire team is women. Uh, all of my advisors, all of the experts that are teaching the classes are all women. And that wasn't on purpose. But I found that as, you know, being a non-business person founder, just kind of putting the energy out there about who wanted to come along on this journey, not really knowing where it was going to lead, I found that women really gravitated towards that. And um, I think that says something about who we are um, and our innovation and our ability to see the possibility in things. Uh, but I think that was probably the biggest challenge. And then, of course, along with that fundraising, um, you know, having an all women team, you know, being somebody that isn't necessarily from the business world, but is really passionate about what I'm doing. Um, I had to find the right mix of those things when I talked to investors and I'm still dialing that in. So you were one of the very first women when I got into cannabis that threw me a rope when I needed it. 
So it's interesting to hear you talking about this coming back to you in that same way. And when you did that for me, it was, I'd been in the industry for a few years, but it was really the beginning of leading the, the community of women empowered in cannabis. And that was one of the moments that shaped my leadership because somebody who'd been around a lot longer than me, who had much more experience and many more connections within the industry you still saw something that I was doing and I asked you for help and without hesitation, you gave it to me and it, it opened doors for me. So it, it really led, it showed me how things can be done because this is how they're already being done by the leaders of the community. So what has guided your leadership as a woman and as a pioneer in the industry? You know, I think it's a few things, Um, you know, from a personal perspective, I've always been interested in where things are going rather than where things are. So I think that's what led me to be a scientist. And I saw very early on that the society was moving towards plant medicines. And so I got on board about how I was going to study that and how I was going to create a path for that. Um, I think the other things that inspire me is the knowledge that I mean, I don't want me to sound pompous, but it's the knowledge that we're right. Own it. I mean, I know, you know what I mean? We're right. We're right about plants. We're right about pharmaceuticals. We're right about community. Like we're on the right side of things. And when you know in your gut that you're right, you're willing to take arrows for it. And I've taken them. You know, I've, I've spoken at conferences like the National Association of Addiction Disorders. You know, they're not too cannabis friendly, those folks. Um, I've spoken in rooms where people have called me names for talking about cannabis as medicine. I've done outreach with people that said they think people should go to jail for cannabis, even if they're using it for cancer or for HIV. So I, I know that we're right. And I know that I can see that over the past 20 years. Um, and I know where we're going. So I think anybody out there who's working in this field, if you don't feel that it's right, look at how you're into your, look at how you're engaging with the, the industry. Um, you know, if you're working in cannabis right now and you feel empty, if you're working in cannabis right now and you feel like you're doing more harm than good, if you're working in cannabis right now and you constantly question what's the point, um, you're not in the right job in cannabis. So um, I would say that's a good question for people to ask themselves, because this is such an important thing that we're helping the world embrace to embrace through policy, through education, that if that doesn't feel good to you, there's something up, something's up. And I would encourage people to look at that. It could be that the company you're working for is not holding those values. It could be that the position that you're in does not allow you to feed your passion, But cannabis, working in cannabis should feel good because we're doing a good thing. And what do you say specifically to women who are in leadership positions in this industry for other women? This is our industry. I've said this before. Um, You know, I understand that males dominate capitalism. I understand that. But this is not their industry. This is our industry. I mean, we birthed this industry. We birthed it. I know the women who did it. I saw them. I saw them do it. I, you know, and um, and it was really women and gay men 
that birthed this industry. And that's who it belongs to. And that's who it will return to. You know, it's so interesting. I see almost every day a headline about another very large corporate cannabis company shuttering one of its ginormous grow sites mm-hmm. because they're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. They don't understand it. They don't understand the plant. They don't understand the plant's relationship with humans. And so they're making all the mistakes of capitalism, applying it to a topic that just doesn't deserve it. And so I would say to women in leadership in the cannabis industry, stick with it. Stick with it. Stay in it. Because it will come back around to us. It will. Um, you know, these men are going to realize that what it takes in order to get and keep cannabis consumers and make them loyal and make them understand who you are and what you're doing and like, feel like they're a part of you, that they don't really know how to do that. And we know how to do that. So, you know, capitalism is going to take its toll and it's going to be tough for a little while, but we're all still here and we're going to still be here. So just stick with it and know that this industry rightfully belongs to us. Yes. I love that. Thank you. What are you most concerned about and what are you most excited about in the cannabis industry in 2021? Um, Well, what I'm most concerned about is that we will will regress. Um, You know, COVID put a lot of stall on policies that we were trying to move forward in California. I don't really know how the public is going to react as we come out of COVID. You know, cannabis was deemed essential. Um, you know, will we still see people look to cannabis the way they did? Was it a fad? That's something that was just artificial during COVID? We don't really know. Um, so I think just like a lot of industries, cannabis is going to be vulnerable to a post-COVID reality that none of us can predict. But in terms of hopeful, that door swings both ways. So <laughs> we did have a lot of people that discovered cannabis during COVID. Uh, We did have a lot of individuals that started to question cannabis laws during COVID. And we have a new president. And we have a new president that may not be willing to, you know, sign the papers on legalization tomorrow, but has stated support for decrim, has a vice president that was one of the sponsors of the Moore Act, is considering uh, or has deciding on... um, members of the cabinet that have spoken out very favorably towards drug use being a public health issue. So this is going to create a lot of opportunity. And so I think what makes me hopeful and what I hope a message I can put out to the listeners is, is that it's time for action. It's time for action. Uh, if you're not an activist, you're going to be one because this is a window. There's, there's a lot of things that have to line up and really to make a viable window of opportunity for real policy change. And we're entering that phase. We've got public support behind us. We have an economic need. We have an administration that's open. We have um, other countries that are moving ahead of us in this issue. If there was ever a time to strike and make real strides with cannabis reform, it's the next few years. So even though there's a lot of uncertainty, I hope that everyone is gearing up to get ready to write letters to their Congress people, um, to get ready to mobilize their communities, because this is a chance. And if we don't take it, we're going to be waiting a lot longer. You mentioned the MORE Act. What are the pros and cons that you see in the MORE Act? Well, it's it's 
complicated. And I think if you ask activists who have been around for several decades about the Moore Act, they'll say, it's not going to get passed. It's not going to get through the Senate. It was extremely historic and monumental that Congress took up cannabis reform and passed something which had never happened before. And I think that for people that have been seeing legislation come and go over decades, this was absolutely a win for the movement. Now, understanding that, we're never going to get what we want out of federal policy right now. Uh, There's always going to be compromises that we're not going to want to sit with. Uh, This is something we saw in California with Prop 64. So I know that there's a lot of problematic language in the Moore Act, including banning people with drug felonies from participating in the system, opening the door for exports from other countries before it's fully even legal in the United States. However, it's a starting point. It's a starting point and a conversation. And one of the benefits that we may not see because we're so inside it of something like the Moore Act passing the House is that one, it lets other legislators know that it's okay to vote positively on cannabis. Like it's okay. Like we're, we're, it's okay now. You know, you don't have to not do it just because it's cannabis. And that was really important. The other thing that's really important is that for all of the millions of people out in the country that neither use cannabis nor are involved in the cannabis industry, and there's a lot of them, they get to see that this is an issue that is moving forward on the federal level and that legislators are feeling okay about it. They don't care about these provisions. They don't care about what's in paragraph three, section four on page 57, the optics of cannabis being an acceptable issue to vote yes on and an acceptable issue to move through Congress is extremely important. And those of us that are on the ground in the activism and in the industry, it's going to be our job to do the education and outreach needed to make sure that we get as many wins as we possibly can in federal legalization, knowing we can't let um, the perfect be the uh, or the perfect be the enemy of the good. For anyone listening who's getting excited about the opportunity to participate and change in the coming year, where do they go for leadership? Where do they go to find who to write letters, what to write letters about, connect with other activists? Where does someone start? Well, there's a lot of activist organizations that have been around a long time that are very easy for folks to subscribe to. Uh, normal. Of course, uh, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, which has been around since the 1970s, they have a newsletter that keeps people updated on legislation. Um, Another great resource is the Drug Policy Alliance, which I mentioned, which is drugpolicy.org. You can sign up for alerts, not just on cannabis, but on drug policy and criminal justice reform in general. Tom Angel has a really great um, newsletter called Marijuana Moment that I subscribe to. That's a daily digest that gives you a breakdown of everything that's happening in advocacy. Um, And so I think those are some really great places to start. Uh, Marijuana Policy Project is another group that's been around for a very long time. And then, of course, on the industry side, you have organizations like the National Cannabis Industry Association, All of these groups are going to be working to keep people updated and let them know how they can take action and voice their concerns. Where can people find you and Personal Plants? So Personal Plants is launching at the end of January 2021. Uh, The website is mypersonalplants.com. 
And so when we launch in January, uh, we're going to have a CBD-infused bath salt kit that uses arnica and cardamom and all kinds of delicious herbs and flavors. Mm-hmm. We're also going to have an oyster mushroom growing kit that's very easy to grow your own oyster mushrooms at home. And we'll be following that up in the spring with some grow-your-own kits uh, for mushrooms and cannabis. So I really hope that people will check it out and order kits. And if you are thinking that's a bit below your skill level, order one for your mom. Uh, What I'm really hoping from personal plants is that people will think about others in their life that they really want to turn on to earth medicine and send them the kit knowing that it'll be fun and it'll be easy. So think about people in your life that maybe have been a bit interested in earth medicine, maybe a bit reluctant to jump right into the cannabis pool and think about personal plants as their entree into that world. Amanda, thank you so much for your time. I could seriously sit and talk with you all day. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our website, womenempoweredincannabis.com and find your group. Supply Chain, CBD and Hemp, and the recently launched Women of Color. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Join us next week for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.